Hello everybody, welcome to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. This is a part of the series I'm doing where I interview what I like to call normal people. I would not, however, characterize Mr. Ben Landry as a normal person. He was somebody, I guess technically still is, who has been out on the cutting edge of computing for a very long time. And you might want to ask why in the world I'm interviewing this man on a podcast. Well, the reason I'm interviewing him is because this is a history podcast. And I happen to believe, very, very, very strongly in fact, that we're sitting today in a revolution. It's a revolution of computing where the killer application isn't an application at all, but is the humans that you want to talk to. That you use your phone or essentially we, you know, we call it a phone, but really it's a communication device of all sorts and and kinds, really. I mean, I was sitting looking at my phone today and realizing that I essentially have three apps on my phone that do essentially the same thing. It's just that I have different people that use the same or different apps. And, like, I know people different ways. Like, I communicate with people that I don't really know them enough to give them one app, so I use this other app or or whatever. Well, Mr. Landry can speak directly to a world before that. So anyway, I thought I'd get him to come on the podcast and talk about that. Anyway, um, the one thing i got to warn you about is this is a very, very dry podcast. So if you're not into the dryness of everything and you don't really want to hear, like you don't want to get into the weeds, I guess, with computer uh, hardware then I would suggest that you skip over this one. But if you don't, and if you don't mind being educated about maybe something that doesn't really exist anymore, because that was the thing that struck me, was how little of what he talks about is even around even now, all these years later. But it really isn't that much later. Anyway, as always... Thank you, and I'm having a lovely day, and I hope you are too. Take it away. This call is now being recorded. Hello, I'm Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager, and I'm here with Ben Landry. Would you care to talk in your own words about why I wanted you on the podcast? You said you wanted to talk about my history with computers. I do very much. When did that start? My history with computers actually started in grade school. And at that point in time, basically, other than big businesses, there were no computers. In grade school, my parents got me this cute little plastic toy that really taught me binary. And I enjoyed that nice little toy. And as we got up in high school, 
the phone company had this cute little card that they called a cardiac. And it was a card that taught you how computers worked. You moved a little strip up and down. That were the instructions you wrote on the strip. Do this, add one, increment two. It was very, very basics of how early computers work. Now, you have to realize, in these days, the only computers that existed were your big mainframes. There were no personal computers. There were no computers people the average person could play with. When I got into high school, there was a group called the 4-H Club, where most people associate that with animals, etc. In the city of Birmingham, Alabama, one of the big life insurance companies downtown sponsored a 4-H group dealing with computers. And we got to go look at the IBM 360. They wouldn't let us touch it, but they'd let us look at it. But what we did get to do in those days, you actually punched cards to write the program. So we started learning about coding for real businesses, punching cards, how you manipulated cards. So these punch cards would have 80 columns, and each column had one letter in it. And for that one letter you would punch out two or three holes in that column. And there was a, that pattern was a single letter. So each card would hold one line of text 80 characters long. So programs were written by punching them into cards. The cards were fed into the computer to make in, uh, source code for the compiler. The compiler made the program, then the operator ran the program. But in those days, the computer time was so valuable, they had a lot of things that were actually done by punch card in advance. So you would take a deck of cards. When we talk a deck of cards, you're talking thousands to tens of thousands of these cards that would come in this tray or multiple trays that were typically four foot long. And you'd put this rack of tray or this tray of cards into what they called a sorting machine and on the sorting machine you would turn a dial over to the column that you wanted if you were sorting like names and the last name was 12 characters long you'd go over to the 12th layer character and you'd run it through the sorting machine and it would sort the cards in order, but only by that letter. Then you would pick them all up, put them back in the tray, move the dial over one, do it again. Now you were sorted by the last two letters. You did that 12 times, you had the last name. And it was, the computer was so slow in those days and so much in demand in those days that it was worth the company having somebody stand there and sort the list ahead of time so the computer didn't have to. Wow. Then they had a then they had a cute device called an accumulator. This is a machine 
that just read the cards. And you had a punch panel that you would connect wires to on the front of this machine. The punch panel came in and out, and it let you program the machine. And the machine had in it counters. So you could set up the punch panel. Uh, let's just say you were counting the heights of people. You could have a column that was the height of the people, and you could set up the punch panel that if the height was six feet, increment counter one. If the height was five nine, increment counter two. If the height was five seven, increment counters five, or ad nauseum. And it had hundreds of counters in it. And then you could run the cards through there, and it would tell you, oh, in this stack, 27 people are 6 foot 0, 49 people are 5 foot 11, ad nauseum. So a lot of statistical information was done on these accumulator machines. Hmm. Then you got to the computer. And if anybody who's seen a nice old movie where you have the big tape machine there, that was for real. The machine, the computers were always in large air-conditioned rooms. There were just vaults of tapes. And you would, the tapes were like databases of information. So especially for the insurance company, for, they were running for all their records. Go ahead. For, for comparison to modern day, uh, my phone has 64 gigs of memory or hard drive. How much information could be on one of those tapes? I'm honestly trying to remember. It's only been, you know, 50 years. Well, I but remember. They would be in the neighborhood. Uh, it would be, it would be in the neighborhood of, of megabytes at most. Wow. Wow. Um, let me ask you a, a quick question though. Uh, was there ever, was there back then, 50 years ago, was there ever any, any, I guess, smarty pants, you know, computer person that was on this whole other level that you were around that was all, you know, one day we'll have pocket computers and you'll be able to, you know what I'm saying? Like, that you ran into. Like, I know that person existed, but did anybody ever pull back and get meta and be like, this this is going to change? You well, know? There were, yeah, there were a lot of people. And, of course, um, kind of like today, people think about you're never going to make it to Mars. Right. And you have people who say you are. And you have people who say you never happened. You always had in all of um, time. Yeah. Yeah. You had the, you had the, the people who saw what was going to happen. You had people who saw what might happen and were wrong. They had a different vision. And you had people who were always um, naysayers. You always have a naysayer. What did you, 
when maybe not 50 years ago, but say 25 years ago. So mm-hmm. saying, uh, well, 85 was longer than 25 years ago now, wasn't it? But say around 85, what did you see coming down the road that never happened? In about that time, you had a little card called the PCMCA card. And this was very popular for a while. It was a card of an inch and a half wide, two, three inches long. And it would literally plug into the bus of the computer. So in some cases, it would have RAM, random access memory, so that you could store more data on it. Other places it had ROM. Uh, and lots of computers had these PCMCA slots. And in some cases, that's how you plugged in the fax machine. Because people didn't like to open computers. The average person just wanted to plug something in. So you had lots of devices that would plug into the PCMCA slot. There would be one or two PCMCA slots. And the beauty of the card was that it plugged directly into the computer's main bus, so it ran as fast as the computer did. Essentially running the motherboard. Yeah, it, it plugged directly. Well, it More than the motherboard, it was plugging into the main bus on the motherboard. Lots of okay, things these right. days plug into the motherboard, but they go through some serial chip or something. This was plugging right into the motherboard. It was on the parallel bus. It could move information as fast as the bus could move it. And the cards had all sorts of, as I said, fax, uh, modems, or all sorts of features that these cards had. And I thought that instead of having two or three slots, computers would end up with 10 or 20 slots and vendors who sold software would put their software on this card, and you would just, if you yeah. wanted to run Word, you just plug it in. And so it was already on the bus, the program would open instantly. Even today, you click on Word, and 20 minutes later, obvious exaggeration, Word finally <laughs> comes up and says, what do you want to do? And most of that time, is moving it from your hard drive into RAM. So it's taking it off the mass storage device, and it's putting it on the hardware that can be read by the main bus. Well, the PCMCA card was read by the main bus, so you would have gotten rid of all of that load time. Even solid-state drives today, you don't execute from the solid-state drive. You move the program from the solid-state drive into the RAM, which is on the main bus, and then you run the program from the main bus RAM. Here was something that everybody could – you'd have the program right there on the main bus, and guess what? It's automatically copy-protected because you had to have the card to run the program. So one of the things that I actually thought was going to – expand like wildfire with these PCMCA cards. You could get them with programs on it, but the the big program manufacturers never, you know, it just never went down this way. 
Why? Now <laughs> Because you're right. That does sound better. It sounds better. This is why I thought it was going to happen. I suspect it has to do with cost distribution. Right. To make a floppy disk in those days or a CD later on, the cost of replicating the magnetic media, you know, was pennies to dollars. Whereas here you had a piece of hardware. I'm sure that piece of hardware cost, you know, 10 to 100 times more. Mm. So I suspect the economy of distribution eliminated that from happening. I wonder if it was the supply chain or, or like, uh, I know some of those parts might not have been able to, at least in the early days, might not have been able to go on a long extended road trip, if you know what I mean, on a truck or something. Maybe. Uh, the hardware um, wasn't a problem. The hardware was actually flash memory, very similar to how your solid state drive works today. It just wasn't quite as dense. The the cards held, you know, uh, kilobytes and megabytes, not gigabytes, like the hard drives do today. But it was early versions of the, the hard drive. So it was like plugging a hard drive. You know what I mean when I say parallel versus serial? Uh, you refresh, well, refresh the memory of, okay, so this is a, this is a podcast listened by, to by quite a few people. So we're going to okay, send gonna, some of the, you're going to have to hold off a second cause I'm trying to cough. Um, in serial, you sent all the information down one wire. So if you wanted to send a byte, you had to send eight ones and zeros down the one wire. Parallel meant you had so many wires beside each other. And when you wanted to send a byte, you sent um, each yeah. bit on a different wire. So a parallel bus that was eight bits wide was eight times faster, keep the math simple, than a serial bus. Well, then computers started having 16-bit uh, wide main buses, 16 times faster than a serial. 32 wide, now we have 64-bit wide buses. They're 64 times faster than serial. Does that make sense? Oh, it it makes sense. I I just have I have a lot of listeners, and they you know we all know different things about different things. Well, um. Your solid-state drives today send information yeah. over to the computer. A lot of them are still serial-type buses. They're super high-speed serial buses. Your uh, thumb drive is a serial bus item. It's sending everything for all practical purposes over one wire. I realize there's more than one wire in a USB stick, but for all practical purposes – you're sending one bit at a time. Whereas on the main bus, you're moving things 64 bits at a time. The beauty of the PCMCA card is it plugged into the main bus and it was 64 times faster. Okay. Now the interesting question, 
is the reverse of that, which is okay. what did I think didn't have a prayer that I was totally wrong again? Yeah, what was in about that? that yeah, in about that same time period, all monitors were CRT. Most of them, in fact, were orange on or green. You're just starting to get color monitors. And you just had the inkling of LCD screens, LED and LCD and LED screens. The LED screens absolutely were horrible. There was no contrast. The viewing angle was like two degrees wide. You had to be right in front of the thing. If there was sunlight coming in the window on the guy's desk next to you, you couldn't read your own LCD, LED screen. They were horrible. And people predicted that these were going to come become popular. And I'm like, this piece of crap is never going to catch on. I was wrong again. Because just about everything we look at these days between TVs, monitors, even uh, at your sporting events, if you can go to them anymore, are using LEDs. Those people who believed in them and stuck with them, my kudos to them. Okay. Let me just tell my listeners, of which there's quite a few, uh, I've actually known you for years and years. And I remember ages ago, I asked you a question. I asked you, um, what was the thing about computers that that you look at today and, like, you just see it and it's everywhere, but it literally blows your mind? And I remember you gave me an answer, but and this is a few years ago, but I don't remember what it was, and I wondered if I could get an updated answer. Storage density. In other words, yeah. how much information you can cram into what size space. The first personal computer I ever bought, it had eight chips in it. Uh, about this, the the uh, about the size of the end of your thumb. All right. So that, yeah. call it an inch long and like a quarter inch wide. And that chip held 4,000 bits. Not bytes, bits. So that first computer I ever owned that you could buy commercially had mm. eight of these chips in there so that it had 4,000 bytes of memory. Okay. So let's see. 4,000 bytes, and you take a thousand of those, so it would take, if I had a 8,000 chips, I could get up to four megs. What's the smallest thumb drive you can get today? I mean, you can maybe get one for 15 gigs. I mean, so a, so a <laughs> single single thumb drive will hold a thousand times a thousand 
of what used yeah. to barely fit in my hand. Right. Um, okay. So, all right. I didn't, I didn't mean to take you off the timeline, but so let's okay. dip back, let's dip back into the timeline here, but I'm going to speed it up a little bit. Was there anything between the 4-H club and, let's see, you told me once that you were writing programs, was it in high school, that you weren't, okay, what was the story? It was like you were writing programs that you weren't, uh, that you couldn't run for a couple, for a little while anyway. Was that right? Um, Possibly. These days, you sit down in front of the computer, you type in a program, you push run, and it runs it right away for all practical purposes. And those days, you pulled out a coding pad, basically a graph paper, and you would write down lines of code. And then you would take the graph paper to the card punch machine, and you would punch them into the cards. Then you would take the cards... And you would actually hand them into the computer room, and they would compile the cards and give you another set of cards that were the executable program. Then you take the executable program over to where they ran the programs, and you would get a printout because you could go look at a screen. Let me pause you for sure. just a second. Okay, just for everybody that's going to listen to this later. You're actually talking about humans. Like, you're actually talking about people, human beings. Like, you would actually yes, take it to somebody who would then take it to some. Okay, so you're talking you about would, human beings. You would start out with what amounted to it. They would call it a coding pad. What it okay. was was graph paper with very specific lines because you had to put the right character in the right column for the computer to understand it. And you would literally, like, write one letter at a time. And so if you can imagine taking a piece of graph paper and putting one letter in each square, okay, and you would write your program like that. Then you would take that piece of paper, and generally there was a kind of like a typist. You would hand that to, to to a person sitting in front of, It was a card punch machine, and what they would do is they would type up everything that you had written by hand, and every line turned into a card. So if you had filled a page with, say, 25 lines, 80 characters wide, you get 25 cards out. Well, programs often took thousands and thousands of lines of code. So you're turning in page after page after page that they type up, and they give you decks of, you know, hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of cards that you would put on a cart so that you could wheel the cart over to the compile room where you would put it, they would take it through the door that you were not allowed into the all-important computer that in many cases filled the whole floor of the building. And they would feed the card into the computer, 
And generally, the cards would be copied to the magnetic tape. Then they would take the magnetic tape, often move it from one tape machine to another tape machine, because the one tape machine was reading from the card reader. You still weren't to the computer yet. You had a machine that was reading the cards and writing them to the tape. So that machine was always attached to that tape unit. Then you take the tapes off of that, and a person would carry it over to another tape unit. And this tape unit had, I'll call it a low-end computer, that compiled the code. It would turn the letters into ones and zeros that the program would understand. And they would either, the program would then be written to tape, and then you would be given a reference number. You could run program 1642946.7, which was whatever you had turned in. So you could turn in a work order to run that program, or you could ask for a hard copy where they gave you a deck of cards back. Executable is much, much more efficient. You might go from 10,000 cards down to 100 cards for your executable program. So you could either take the executable programs to the main computer where they would run it, or you could take and say, here's a work order, I want you to run this program. The output was always a printout for most people. I happened to work on programs that actually made machines run. So we would compile it, take it to a machine, for testing, make sure that machine worked properly. Then we'd release it to the main machine that was doing some function or another, and away we'd go. And every one of those moves was done by hand. And it took a little while to write a line in the code. Well, the reason I was asking was because it struck me that those might be people and now, of course, that's all done by a computer. I mean, when you write code, and that's, I mean, so that's in a way, that's how far we've come. Um, well, you've, you know what Apollo program. And right. Apollo landed on the moon, right? Yes, sir. All of the computers that went into space on a single launch had less power than your watch. And far less power than my phone. Yes. <laughs> Most people's smart watches today have more computer power than the Apollo capsule and the LEM landing module combined. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So all that was a compiler. Um, and then you... Didn't you... Uh, have we gotten you into the military yet, or can you even talk about that? Um, when I got out of high school, I applied to and got accepted at Georgia Tech. And at that point in time, there was a draft. And before my – keep life simple – they had a lottery for who was going to get drafted. And I won the lottery. So Uncle Sam sends me this nice invitation to show up for a pre-induction physical. 
and I passed. I suspect I passed because I was actually able to show up. And when you were being drafted in those days, you tended to end up in the Army. You tended to be end up in Vietnam. And regretfully, I had acquaintances who basically did not come back from Vietnam, and that just did not, as me as a geek, seem like a lot of fun. So I went down to the local Air Force recruiter and said, what can we do to keep me out of the Army and not be a cook in the Air Force? So we had to take a bunch of aptitude tests, and they had to be a bunch of phone calls back and forth. We ended up enlisting in the Air Force, and we worked in the Air Force with some low-end computers and some interesting electronics. And when we got out, we went back to we went back to school to finish our degree. While I was at Georgia Tech, I actually took computer programming languages. I took both languages that Tech offered at the time: Fortran and Algo. And you did the same sort of thing with either the punched cards or you also had tape that you could punch it into. Very similar type of thing. For for my listeners, uh, can you tell me what Fortran... I think they got back to using that, didn't they? Or am I mistaken there? No, but, Fortran, especially at the time, was designed to solve formulas. That's what it was all about. Fortran and Algol, algorithms. So it's Fourier transformation and algorithms, languages. You use the computer to solve complex equations. You didn't use the computer to sort things. You paid people to go to the card deck and sort things. You used the computer to solve algorithms that if you sat down with your, because you didn't have a calculator, if you wanted to solve an equation, you pulled out your slide rule. There, you, there was, or an abacus. All right. So to run an extremely complex equation, you you programmed up the equation, and these like these computer programming languages were really designed to solve equations. Read this value, read that value, do uh, a quadratic equation on it, do a Fourier analysis on it. These programming languages, you did not use computers to play games, sort data, keep up with stuff. You use them to solve problems, mathematical problems. Yeah. And in that, I mean, to me, that's like the, okay, of course, I'm much younger than you. I guess. But to me, like, that's the biggest change in computers. Is it used to be something, even in my life, that was, like, relegated to a certain group of people. And now, like, everybody's talking about this or that spec on whatever. I mean, well, <laughs> it's just different. As, as we were talking earlier, a computer, you would have a high-rise building that covered a whole square block. And you had the computer floor. The computer filled the whole floor of the building. As computers advanced, 
they started taking up less and less space. So they only took up half the floor, a quarter of the floor, etc. When it wasn't until literally I got had out of the military and out of college that you started getting small personal computers. And it was you, that you they were something that you could buy but you really had to know what you were doing to use them. They were not for general purpose, they were for geeks, electronics people. You would often program these things by putting in ones and zeros. That first computer that I bought that I was telling you about, the first one that I owned that had all of 4,000 bytes of RAM, you could, if you wrote a program and typed it in, you could store it on an audio tape. You would press a button, and it would copy all of the memory to an audio tape at 300 bits per second. That would take a long time. Well, you only had four. You only had 4,000 bytes. You only had 32,000 bits. So you had 32,000 bits at 300 bits per second. So it took 100 seconds. But you couldn't write much of a program for 4,000 bytes. On the flip side, you had a monitor. The monitor was your television set. And you could put colored squares and other things on it. Uh, I made simple little games on the program, write programs on that little thing. Othello was one. Literally where the computer would play a game of Othello with you in this little 4,000-byte program. But the average person had to wait a little longer, and really probably the IBM XT, which was an 8-bit wide computer that had one megabyte of RAM. And you had five-and-a-quarter-inch floppies that you could store your program on. There were no hard drives. When the first IBM computers came out, you took a a five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy, you put it into the drive, you turned it on, and it loaded the operating system off the floppy. And then when you wanted to run a program, you took that floppy out, you put another floppy in, and you loaded what amounted to your Word, the equivalent of Word or Excel, very basic versions of them, but you could type in letters and save text files. Right. You could type in numbers, and each person could write their own little spreadsheet. That was the so-called killer app, wasn't it? The- I guess the spread, what, I can't even remember, uh, VisiCalc, or that was it, VisiCalc. VisiCalc was probably one, WordPerfect was another. These are predecessors before Microsoft Word or Excel existed. And there were dozens of different people who were writing programs and and selling them. And does, so 
one of the interesting things is you didn't, there was no internet. So there was no standardization across programs. So if you had an Excel type program by vendor A and Excel type program by vendor B, they didn't talk to each other. But it wasn't a problem. You used the Excel for you. They weren't going to use your program. They couldn't get to your program because your program was on your floppy and you had to plug your floppy into your computer to use it. So the sharing of information was the first, was the next, I'll call it leap. And the right. first sharing of information was via modems. Somebody would hook up a computer that other people could use the phone line to dial into. I actually remember. I, let me just tell the story real quick. I actually sure, remember. I, I think it's hilarious now. I laugh at this every day. Now, I uh, was on a BBS, um, which is like a. For those of you who don't know, it was, I guess they took a the acronym of a bulletin board system. So if you think about a church or a town hall having a bulletin board, and they would put leave messages, so that was your first. Not even a website, really. Just the, like I guess you'd call it a primitive chat room, right? Uh, to use our modern parlance today. But the thing I remember was I was I was visiting a BBS in Sandy Springs, you know, and like I just laugh at that all all the time now. Like I nowadays I have a friend in Indonesia and I talk to him all the time or. Like I recorded a podcast with a, with a guy up in Iowa today. <laughs> you know? It's like the world's getting smaller. You know? Did I lose you? Nope, I'm still here. But the yeah. interesting thing you left off, yeah, all of that communications that you're talking about was in text. There was no graphics. There was no color. You had text on a screen. When you dialed in with the modem, you didn't have pictures. At best, you might have a line drawing. And even then, the line drawings were made up of text characters. There was a vertical line or a horizontal line or a corner. So all of those early modems that you were dialing into would bring you a list. What do you want to do today? Select between these five items. Exactly. And um, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on this podcast was, um, so I'm doing a history podcast, and I figure, believe it or not, I kind of figure, like, you guys are the last generation, like the last group of people that, are, that remember before now, not just that you remember before now, but that you worked in it, like you worked in it as adults, right? Like, like you, I, I talked to a, a guy today, which was a great conversation, but I talked to a guy today that had literally said, well, colleges have always had online classes. And I was like, well, for him they have. You know, so, but that's how ubiquitous computers have become, basically. 
And, you know. Did you ever have, now my, I had a, I had a buddy when I was in school, or when I was growing up. His father had what I believe to be the first email. But it was like, he had a direct line into his job. You know what I'm talking about? Go on, keep talking. It was like he had this, okay, he had this computer. Or I don't want to call it, it was a terminal. And it was, I think it was powered off the phone. He would like wire it into the phone. And he had like a direct line to his job downtown. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he worked with the state. Teacher retirement. Well, in in the early again, you're you're still talking back in modem days. I mean, the early modems. You literally just used the landline in your office. You would pick up the phone. You would okay. Let me rotary dial. Sure. Let me let me. I don't mean to get super basic, but okay. I literally have people that have no idea what a landline phone is. So <laughs> okay. could you pretty please explain to them? <laughs> I hate to tax you like this. I really do. No, but. no. no. Okay. <laughs> before the okay. Before the cell phone, before wireless, that your your telephone was sitting on a desk or sitting on the wall and a wire ran out your house and literally to a central switchboard. In some cases, you actually shared the wire with your neighbor. So your when phone, was it? I've heard of it. I'm sorry. I've heard of this. Go ahead. But I've heard of this. In the they 1960s. Called, they were called party lines. Okay. okay. Now, let me, give, let me give the folks a little bit of context, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, my parents who are alive today and reasonably healthy, were children in the 1960s when this was going on. Okay, so, all right. No, I'm I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just... No. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm teaching... You, you, I'm giving a history lesson here for people. Unlike <laughs> the cell phone that would fit in your hand, the telephone was a box, call it six inches wide, eight inches deep, five inches high, and you picked up a piece that was wired to it that a microphone would sit in front of your mouth and an earpiece would hold in your ear, and you held it up like a lot of people hold their cell phone, but the only thing in it was the microphone and the earpiece. The wire went down to the phone, and there were no push buttons on it. There was a dial, and you would spin the dial around, to enter numbers, and those numbers would pulse down the line, and you had to have literally a wire running from your house to the central exchange. Well, in some cases, houses shared the wire. So, like your phone rings or sings a song or whatever, the only thing the phones did there was a bell would ring. Ring. On the party line, so that you know who the phone was for, you had patterns. 
ring, ring, or it was the same tone, but so it would be short and long. Ring, ring, ring. That was Sam. Ring, ring, ring. That was Paul. Ring, ring, ring was Phil. And you had to know your ring to know if you're supposed to answer the phone or not. The other reason they called it a party line is anybody on the group could pick it up and eavesdrop on the conversation. So you started with what was called a landline, a box sitting there that you had to pick up and hold to your ear. First major improvement, call it in the 70s, is you came up with private lines. Initially, you had to actually pay extra money to get a private line, but they finally, in the early 70s, more or less, everybody had their own private line. I'm sure there's somebody alive today who didn't get one till the 80s, so sorry, but the bulk of people had them in the 70s. Now, you would pay for that? Okay, wait. You just said something I didn't know. So you would actually, it was like a thing you'd pay for. Well, first off, you had to pay for the phone system to start with. You know, have, just like you had, just like you have to pay for your cell phone, you had to pay for the phone that was in your house. But I mean, I'm going to make up the numbers. You paid $10 a month for the party line and you paid $20 a month for a private line. Oh, I see. I see. One that you weren't sharing. I'm sure the numbers are wrong. But the concept was oh, right. I, I know that I know they're wrong because I found a phone bill from get this. Uh nineteen I found a phone bill downstairs recently, uh from nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And we made a long distance call for get this. Seven dollars and the whole phone bill now think about what your phone bill cost today, right? The yep. whole phone bill was ten dollars. Well, one of the <laughs> interesting differences for the that again, there's no cell towers, there's no cell phone, there's no wireless. Everything was landline. Well, you had a local exchange, and whatever you paid monthly, you could call everybody locally without charge. Nobody had a cell phone with them, so you had these things called phone booths. Phones hanging on public places that you could go into and put a nickel or a dime, depending on what decade you're talking about, and use the local line. So you could go from your phone to the local exchange to anybody on the local exchange, and it is included in your monthly fee. But if you wanted to talk to somebody on another exchange, that was a long-distance call. And in order in the U.S., and I'm going to muck up the system, but it's kind of this flavor. In the U.S., there was a push to have a phone in every home. Well, to run a phone line to 50 people who all live in the same urban neighborhood costs one unit of money. But to have that same one phone per household when you're out in the country and the farmhouses are five miles apart, costs a lot more. Was well, a good deal more, right? To do more. But so that the farmers paid the same kind of local bill that the urban people did, 
long-distance calls were expensive. You did not make a long... I mean, today I can call from Atlanta to California, talk to my son there, and it doesn't affect my bill at all. It's like I, I had a talk today with a guy from Iowa for like an hour. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Didn't even think about it. No, a long-distance call... <laughs> You know, depending on the time of day, and they had all this rate stuff, but a long distance call could cost you a dollar or two a minute. So the long distance calls brought in a lot of money to the phone companies, company, because in those days, you basically had one phone company or a few regional, you had, you had one large phone company. And they had basically a monopoly for all practical purposes. And they had cut the deal with the government that they could gouge everybody in the country for long-distance services as long as the phone company put in lines to all the farmers. It's an oversimplification. Now, you've explained, I guess, I hope, you've explained enough about landlines to certain people. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were talking about... uh, Okay, so you wire the computer into the landline. No, well, no. And what you had is a landline came into your house, and then you had a okay. computer, and the two yeah. did not know how to talk to each other by any stretch of the imagination. And that's what a modem was so for. So you could buy an accessory for your computer called a modem, and right. the modem would, in some cases, you would have to put a card in the machine or you had a PCMCA card that you would plug in and it would come outside and there would be this cradle. And what you would do is you'd pick up your phone landline and you'd have to know the phone number of where you were call of the that you were going to call, the computer you were going to call, and you would dial the number on your phone and you would listen for some tones. If you dialed the number right, you'd get the computer tones at the other end. If you dialed the number wrong, you'd get somebody saying, hello, what do you want? But you'd get the tones. And once you got the tones, you would sit the phone down in this cradle, and the two computers would would call handshake. They would negotiate with each other on how they were going to talk. And then eventually, you would get something pop up on the screen. You ever seen the movie War Games? I I have, and I actually remember the dial tone. I mean, the, remember the, the dial you know, the tone hand, and him hooking it up. I remember the handshake. The computer. Yep. I re, I remember the handshake uh, agreement, and I also remember I, I I remember somebody. I used to know a fella who was um, frankly a genius, and for some reason he took a a real sign to me. And he explained to me when I was a little boy what all those sounds meant. And I knew what those sounds meant. I swear to God, I knew what those sounds meant well into my 30s. <laughs> and then I, well, I had to bust them out of RAM. <laughs> you know? Well, overly simplistically, they were trying to identify that you're both computers, what protocol you were going to use, what speed you were going to use, these kind of things. The other interesting thing that came out in the early 70s was the first push-button phones where you would go yeah. up to the phone. Instead of turning the rotor, you would sit there and 
press the buttons, and just about everybody, and when you would press the button, you would get a single tone. And just about everybody, the first time they got a push-button phone, is they figured out how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb on the push-buttons. <laughs> and there was some they, sequence, back in the day, there was some sequence that you could push on those phones, right, that would that would trick the, 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 the phone company into making, letting you make long-distance calls or something? Well... If you were, they were starting to computerize things, and the computers communicated with tones. And generally, those tones weren't any of the the ten or twelve tones that you got off your push buttons on your phone. But the real geeks knew those tones. And at one point in time, you uh, you know what a weenie whistle is? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You want to tell your audience what a weenie whistle is? So there was this whistle. I think company. it came it came from a hot dog company. Yep. And somebody who is famous now, and I can't remember who this person is. Uh, somebody who is famous today for doing something in Silicon Valley uh, made his bones as a young man by accidentally figuring out that you could take a weenie whistle and trick the phone company. Right. And you could you type in a certain call. set of you, – you had to know the patterns. You could type in patterns on your phone, and then the computer at the other end would sit there, okay, how are you going to pay for this? Well, you couldn't pay for it with your 12 standard tones, but the weenie whistle could be used to generate the tones that the computer thought you were paying. Oh, I can't, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, and you know what? It's, my podcast is running so fast, I, I probably better not say his name if I remember it. But, <laughs> but, uh, alright. So, okay. Um, so that's the 70s. Um, I, I really want to get to, Let's see. I want to. Okay. Uh, what was the. Okay. You don't want to talk about the job you had before the job you have now, right? Like the. the what job do you want to talk about? The job with the. With the cancer. Where you were helping to care. You were working okay. on cancer. There was. Cancer. Yep. There was a company here in uh, Georgia that yeah. had developed a cervical cancer screener. And I worked on this cervical cancer device. It had a stripped-down Windows computer embedded in it that we had three or four different programmers who wrote that. And it used a USB bus from that computer to talk to other processors throughout the system. And I programmed all of those other processors. And those processors made things happen. They, they 
rotated wheels with lenses and they changed the color of the light and they changed, they ran a spectrograph and a video camera and everything that this device had to do in order to look, basically if you take a flashlight and you shine it in your hand, you could see down inside, you could see part of the inside of your skin. This device did that. It shined a bright light into the lady's cervix and a spectrograph picked up that bright light and we had an algorithm for processing that bright light and determining whether or not there was cancer present in the cervix. And one of the sweet things about this machine was that what many ladies today do is they go and get a pap smear and the pap smears, they literally scrape some cells off the surface. Well, this light could see the surface and layer and upon layer upon layer behind that. It could actually see cancer before the cervix or before the pap smear could. So this was a nice device that um, we were working on. And I'll let you get with the I enjoyed working on the device. I had over a dozen little processors that made things move and do things. I just thoroughly enjoyed working on this device. Um, let's just say yeah. management and the FDA never got <laughs> came into an agreement. Yeah. We sold this thing uh, internationally with no problem. We had numerous letters come back from doctors internationally where they had detected cancer early in ladies and that without it, they would have probably let the cancer progress farther. I am not a biologist. I can barely spell cancer. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, I got through those classes. I excelled at the math and the programming classes, which is where I have earned my living. The biology and the medicines behind this product is not my forte, but right. the rest of the world loved it, but our FDA did not. Right. And okay. I am not the biologist who can answer the whys and the wherefores of that one. Okay, right. I wasn't going to ask about that, but I did want to talk... Well, first of all, um, okay, so fun, and normally I put this in the front of my podcast, but I'm not, I didn't do that tonight. And, um, but so I asked a couple of questions, I asked a few questions about my interviewees. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, uh, when did you hear about, uh, COVID-19? When was the first time you heard about it? Probably early this year. First okay. started hearing about it early this year. Um, I had actually taken a trip out of the country in March. And the news oh, wow. media was covering covert more and more and my wife was getting worried that I wasn't going to be able to get back in the country um, 
but I'm happy to say I had I got back in just in time because all the flight restrictions and all of this really started a couple of weeks after that. Oh wow, I, I didn't know. Wow, oh, wow. Uh, I'm glad you made it back. Um, okay. Well, you know. So... It, it, go ahead. No, no, no. no. I, was, I was I was happy too. You know. <laughs> I know of some other people who actually didn't make it back for some significant time and some others I've lost track of that I honestly don't know if they're back or not. Yeah, I have a I have a uh, I have an aunt and uncle and they're still in Guatemala. Uh yeah, and I actually want to interview them on this podcast too. Or I I might even just interview them using the technology and not release it and just have it for their their kids and grandkids kind of thing cuz they're well, old. I remember <laughs> coming back from where I was. I was going through, uh, happened to be going through Paris, coming back, and because I was changing planes in Paris, and there was English news on the monitor, and they were talking about how COVID had already caused one of the English airlines to file bankruptcy. Yeah. Yep. So I'm like, okay, what is going on here? <laughs> well, um, so, uh, let me ask you, uh. So what's your uh, other introductory question that we skipped? So the next question, uh, is, uh, when did you realize, okay, so early part of this year, so when did you realize not just that it was a thing in the world, but that it was coming to America and that it was going to be a kind of a big deal? Well, when I was overseas, let's just say in the March time frame, I was seeing it in the news in more places. They talked about China, China, China type of thing, and they were talking about the cruise ships starting to come down with cases of it, and they were starting to worry about how the airlines were going to do something. And shortly after I got back, there were a couple of events that I'm like, okay, it's going to come here. Because Do you remember were, what those events were? A, a couple of them. One okay. of them was a one of them was, was listening to the news and they were talking about the ship that had covid running rapid and how our government had sent a plane to the America to to wherever the ship was to get all the Americans off and bring them back to the States. And I'm sitting okay. there, yes, I'm sure that the COVID on the ship left the Americans alone. <laughs> right, right. The other event was in the Atlanta news. Okay. I remember they talked about that they were screening people at the Atlanta airport before they were letting them into Atlanta. And I'm sitting there, I think, that's great. And then they showed a camera of the people waiting to be screened. 
you could not get cattle any thicker into a corral than the people were standing. So I'm sitting here, okay, to make sure that nobody with COVID gets into the country, we're going to make sure that whoever's got it is standing next to 17 other people. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's coming. What? You might as well get ready. Well, one of the things, like, so one of the things that, because you might not know, um, I'm doing a podcast um, covering the um, Spanish flu as well as COVID-19, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what this is. Um, but I also yep. want to talk to various people. You're one of them. Um, but one of the things I've noticed is that the knowledge of COVID-19 is, to put it mildly, very, very, very fluid. Like, you know, like you can, like you'll cut your phone on and learn something new. Like, you know, like, wow. Well, the interesting thing is how the statistics are manipulated for all of us. And the statistic that I try to track down, but it's hard to find, uh, but I've seen yeah. a couple of places, but I couldn't tell you where they are today. Probably one of the best ones that I have seen. It's not mine. It's somebody else's. I can't give them credit because I don't remember who did it. But they started plotting a graph that really, really showed what was going on with COVID. And what the graph was is instead of time and the number of cases, which gets distorted in all kinds of ways, all right? Yeah. Especially when you're talking about something that has a a geometric growth. Right. They put on the x-axis the number of known cases, and on the y-axis the increase, the the new cases, something like this. Okay. And it's interesting, they plotted... Uh, lots of different countries. Oh, and yeah. the two graphs, the, the two axes were also done in log form. Okay. So you had the number of existing cases in log form on one axis, and you had the number of new cases in log form on the other. And then they took that information and averaged it over a short period of time, three days, five days, something like that. And interestingly enough, when they plotted every country, it was a sloped line going up. Yeah. And you could see every country following the same line. And when the country got ahead of the problem, it would fall off and come down below the line. And you could start seeing where this person had plotted things, where countries got a handle on it. Okay. Unfortunately, the last time I saw that graph, it was months old. I would love to well, find somebody who's plotting it that way. I don't know, man, but I so I have what I call pre-calls with people uh, before mm-hmm. I actually record them in the podcast. And I actually talked to this woman in Pennsylvania. And my attitude as far as what COVID was changed after I talked to her. Like, seriously, she has this story 
that is terrifying. Like, she rattled off 20 people that she knew, right? And I mean, like, she knew them. They weren't acquaintances or, you know, step-stranger-in-law. She knew these people. And, like, 20 people. And they were missing an arm or a leg or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh, my God. And she also, like, she worked in this office. And five of the people in the office caught COVID. Like, so office of six people. Five of the people in the office caught COVID. So, just saying. (laughs) Again, like I said, biology is not my expertise by any stretch of the imagination. We have a pandemic. I try to follow reasonable guidelines. On the other hand, I'm not going to stay in my bedroom. Well, no, I, I don't either. But um, except when I'm doing my podcast, but well, nor am I nor am I going to COVID parties. <laughs> well, right. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, you got experts that don't know what's going on. It's yeah. terrifying. It is. All right. So there's one more question I always ask, or I've learned. Sorry to ask all my interviewees. And this can be our last question if you want. But sure. Um, okay. Um, so I have this little theory that because I've noticed that people that depending on how fast their internet is and whether or not, I guess I don't know if it's a theory yet, but it's a hypothesis. Like how fast your internet is, or and what kind of news sources you use. Or do you use news at all? Do you see news at all? Is how you think, you know, directly proportional to whether or not you take COVID super seriously or not. So I was wondering that your internet speed is proportional to how serious you take it. Not just your internet speed, but like what news sources you use. Like, okay, so. Oh, what news um, source you use? Yeah. If if there are regretfully, as in most things, yeah. you have people arguing at both ends of the spectrum. You have people right. that say there's nothing to worry about, and you have people that say we're all going to die tomorrow. <laughs> I'm right? in between, and you, and you and you have news sources. <laughs> you know, if if those two ends of the equation are zero and a hundred, you can find a news source at every number in between. And if you get your news from only one source, 30, then you're going to think COVID's a 30. If you get your news source from 70, you're going to think it's a 70. And if you get your news source from 10, 30, 70, and 90, you're going to not have a clue what's going on. Right. Um, I'll tell you this. My stance on COVID has certainly evolved. Um, I think it's very, very serious. Everything I've seen, I don't think it's, I don't think the initial fatality count really covers it. Like, I've heard a lot more anecdotal stories about, like, okay, my dad and I have a friend who essentially caught diabetes from the air. (laughs) Okay, from COVID. Like, COVID killed his pancreas. 
I mean, wow. Um, so it's not it's not nothing. <laughs> oh, I I believe it's not nothing. Um, as I said, I, yeah, it's it's an interesting problem that I don't have a solution to. Um, right. There are well, people who are overreacting, and there are people who are underreacting. And we well, all have Mr. to Land- do what we think is best for ourselves. Okay, Mr. Landry, would you like yep. to tell something to? Uh, would you like to tell something to the internet and one of the fastest growing internet, uh, one of the fastest growing podcasts out there, fastest growing the documentary podcast? Anyway, would you like to tell something to the internet? Welcome to interesting times. <laughs> yes, sir. Both in both in COVID, which has empowered a lot of people to work from home, and the technology that lets them do it, and just do what you have to do to enjoy the life that you have. That is incredibly wise, good sir. That is incredibly wise. Wow. Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, I'll send you your stipends later. You'll send me my what? Stipends. Oh, okay. You'll figure it out. Uh, I will. All right. Um, All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.